1: Welcome, everyone, again to this episode of the Grace Saves All podcast. Today, I am very pleased to be speaking with Brian McLaren. Brian was an intentional English professor who became an accidental pastor, if I can put it that way, mm-hmm. and then went on to become an influential author of a number of best selling books in the area of what I'll call emergent spirituality. He is a lifelong learner and also hosting a new podcast called Learning. How to See, along with Jackie Lewis and Richard Rohr, and this project is connected with Richard Rohr's Center for Action and Contemplation. Uh, Brian's most recent book, Faith After Doubt, explores how doubt can actually be a doorway in our path to greater spiritual awareness. Welcome, Brian, to the Grace Saves All podcast.
2: Thanks so much for inviting me.
1: All right. Well, uh, before we get to your new book, Faith After Doubt, I would like to visit uh, a bit with you about the book that you've written, which touches most on the topic of Christian universalism, and that's the book, The Last Word and the Word After That, which has been recently re-released with a new epilogue. Now, this new edition also contains as well the preface to the paperback edition of The Last Word and The Word After That, and in the preface to the paperback edition of The Last (laughs) Word and The Word After That, you include further reflections on some things you've you've come to appreciate more since that book first came out. And one of those uh, things has to do with how the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD has come to play a bigger role in your thinking about Jesus' judgment language in the New Testament. And I was wondering if you could tell us some more about this.
2: Sure. Well, first of all, uh, I'm so glad that you are pointing that out. Um, I, I went through most of my life as a preacher and as a minister not really taking what happened in AD 70, uh, AD 67 to 70, very seriously. Mm-hmm. But suddenly now it, or in in recent years, I've realized it's tremendously important. And maybe we could make an analogy. Um, you know, I'm somebody, I uh, imagine you are too, David, who's really concerned about climate change. And and we can say to people in our lifetime today, listen, if we don't address climate change, the sea levels are, are going to rise. and. And if the sea levels rise, cities will be flooded. And if cities are flooded, there'll be mass migration from coastal cities. And if mass mm-hmm. migration happens, there'll be all kinds of social and economic consequences. And in, in saying this, we wouldn't be threatening people that we're going to do something to them. We'd be right. saying, if you we keep going on our current path, certain things are inevitably going to happen. And I think that's very much what Jesus was saying. He was looking at his cultural landscape and he was saying the Romans are dominating us and uh, resistance is growing for another attempt at a violent uprising and if mm-hmm. we have a violent uprising the Romans are going to come in and crush us and and so he was trying to counsel his people not to complacency but to nonviolent response to the Roman oppression and and when and but he's he realized you know, my message isn't going to be accepted, and mm-hmm. so he, through many passages, he starts telling people, "Listen, if you don't accept my message, this is what you have to look forward to." Not blaming them that he's going to punish them, but telling them there will be consequences of inaction. And I, I like that. that. I like
1: that. I like that distinction. Uh, some people who want to talk about the what happened in seventy A.D. You know, talk about that as as I don't know God. God was the one who made that happen. Yeah. to and I like the way you're putting it that it was really more of a consequence of of them pursuing the path of violence.
2: Exactly right. And and uh you know you put all Jesus teachings together they're they're following the path of violence. They're turning on each other rather than uniting together. They're uh, all of the themes of Jesus teaching they're not accepting and so they're going to reap the consequences of their behavior. And when you understand that, then you realize all of these passages that preachers have used to preach hellfire and brimstone acting as if what Jesus was talking about was the end of the space time universe, when God is going to right. throw people in jail and so, or in, in, in the fire in and so on
1: yeah.
2: in hell. Um, Then you realize no, he was warning people and, and it wasn't that God was going to do this. <laughs> the Romans were going to do it. Uh, and, uh, And that's what happened in AD 70 after there was a successful rebellion and insurrection uh, for a couple of years, the Romans came in, they burned down the city that not one stone was left on another. Uh, and there was a, a, you know, fire and destruction that happened, not that God brought it on them, but that in a sense, they acted unwisely as people repeatedly do. We just saw in our own country an attempted insurrection, uh, and uh, yeah, it doesn't turn out well.
1: Yeah, I remember when I was reading the New Testament, started reading the New Testament, and I wondered what it was. Jesus kept talking about this sinful and rebellious generation, and warning people about not getting caught up in it. And I was wondering what were these people doing? I mean, what was yeah. the, what was the sinful thing? Were they, was, was they doing some morally bad things? What was it that they were doing? And I remembered when it dawned on me, and thought, oh, what they're doing is. They're pursuing a path of violence. Their religion itself has become violent. The way they're treating each other is violent. They've forgotten compassion. They're, they've lost their sense of compassion. And, and and the violence is now extending to the way that they think they can be successful in the world. And that's what he was warning against. And then the, suddenly the Sermon on the Mount, all the warnings, everything that Jesus was talking about fell into place for me.
2: It really, It really is like a little key that opens up so many things, isn't it, David? That's right.
1: Yeah. Now also in the new edition to the um uh, to the last word and the word after that you say that um that that you'd learned some things from other authors since the book's initial publication which would have strengthened your argument if you had known them and one of the books that you mentioned is a book by Robin Perry which he wrote under the pen name Gregory MacDonald. the name of that book is the evangelical universalist and i was wondering uh, that was an important book that I read in, in my journey. And, and I was wondering if you might say a little bit about your reading of, of Robin Perry's work.
2: Sure. Well, one of the things, I, it's been a while since I read Robin Perry, but one of the things about his book that I really appreciated, uh, that there are ways to counter a kind of, you know, retributive, hell-oriented understanding of the gospel that involve critiquing, um, uh, critiquing uh, biblical passages and drawing questions about authorship and a whole lot of things that evangelicals don't like to do. I come from an evangelical background, so I know this. And and mm-hmm. what I thought was so masterful is that, in a sense, what Robin Perry did is he worked within evangelical assumptions, the way they approach scripture. The um, you know the, he he didn't have to offend evangelical sensibilities to help them see that the understanding of hell that they had inherited didn't even match with what's there approaching the Bible within the rules of the game, so to speak.
1: Yeah, I remember when I was kind of going through my process uh, process on this, I I live in a pretty conservative area of the world in northern Arkansas, and uh, I'm in a Disciples uh, Christian Church Disciples of Christ minister, although I recently retired, but I'm still a Disciples minister but yes. the people around here are fairly conventional in their orientation toward things and i remember when i read the evangelical universalists i thought well first of all i was surprised that that books were being written by people with evangelical backgrounds who were who were really taking the same approach to scripture that they had always taken yes. but now they were they were looking and finding a way to see uh, a universal reconciliation in in, in the text without really that's changing right. their way that they viewed the text.
2: That's, that's, that's exactly what struck me. And, and I, so I knew this book would be really helpful for, for many people, um, many people who are, are not at any point uh, close to wanting to approach the Bible in a different way, but they realize that just because they take the Bible seriously, the conventional teaching uh, about hell doesn't seem to fit <laughs> with uh, the the thrust of Scripture.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting that that what's happening now is it's more and more is that people with evangelical backgrounds are finding this evangelical Christian universalism, yes. with a still with a very conservative approach to Scripture, uh, to 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 be a a, pl- a place where they can go where they can still stay in Christianity. They don't have to change their any really of their core assumptions about the Bible or who Jesus yes. is or anything like that it, but to me that is such a healthier step. The irony then is that sometimes they feel like they, they nobody will receive them. no nobody else will receive them in church. Uh, yeah certainly in the Christian church disciples of Christ our congregations you know wouldn't there, there's probably a lot more places that people would be tolerant of them if they just felt it was okay. so that's why I really appreciate it. Uh, what yes. Robin Perry had, and, and your book, and your book, last word in the, and uh, the word after that, I think, really helped a lot of people. Even though it really didn't go, you know, like all the way. It wasn't sort of like a full blown endorsement of Christian universalism, but it was a pastor that was beginning. It was a story of a pastor who's beginning to realize, oh, there was this early way of understanding this in the early centuries yes. of the church, and it just opened up kind of a new window or a new paradigm for him to think about for him to think about things. And I think that was very helpful.
2: Well, that, that's encouraging to hear. You know, I remember one of my mentors was uh, the great evangelical writer uh, and thinker, uh, Dallas Willard. Oh, and yeah. Dallas Dallas used to say, if your understanding of God is twisted, the more devout you are, the worse off you'll be. And, and I think that's what happens to many evangelicals they uh, when they have this idea in their mind of a god who can't rest unless he tortures someone um uh who in a sense never really forgives anybody but just works out different payment plans instead of forgiveness um uh that view of god ends up torturing them um and it, and they feel it, it it just doesn't reconcile with jesus and and so that conflict because they take scripture seriously forces them to go back and look at scripture in a fresh way.
1: Yeah, I mean that's one of the things that's actually kind of encouraging to me is that is that people who have a who who are really devoted to looking at scripture in its original language in its original contexts yeah. are are going to are going to more and more find find these types of things out and and now There's so many more through, you know, the podcast and the number of books and the number of great scholar the the amount of great scholarship that's out there now, it's it's easier than ever for people to, to access these things.
2: That's right. That's right. Just yesterday, it was interesting. I was, I I was being interviewed by someone who's writing a book that's critical of me and, and other people like me. And it was just so interesting how everything for him came back to heaven and hell. And I, I just, as he was interviewing me, I thought... My gosh, I remember that's how I was brought up. And I just, I'd sort of forgotten what it feels like to live in that universe. But it was, uh, it really was a fear-based approach that mm-hmm. uh, that I could tell, you know, he he had to write a book uh, uh, against, uh, to criticize me. I've no doubt yeah. I've got any number of faults, but it's because it's it, the heaven and hell ultimatum colors everything in his yeah. faith.
1: Well, you you know your, I think your journey is really interesting. Growing up in evangelicalism, being a literature professor, the power of story, and then how you just sort of continued to study and to and to learn more and more, and how you just continued to find more and more light. So you've been a really helpful voice. Another really helpful voice on this journey for me has been Richard Rohr. Yeah, and I think we have both uh, learned to uh, appreciate Richard. He's interesting because he comes out of a catholic background but what he says really resonates with people that don't come yes. out of catholic backgrounds necessarily he sort of to me he sort of speaks on the with in the uh the within the sort of the mystic tradition within the within catholicism yes. but he speaks as much to uh, to uh, Catholics as he does to Protestants, and yeah. in my process there was uh, a couple of his books that he that he wrote, and I know that you're working with Richard now, so I thought it'd be fun to uh, to share some Richard Rohr with each other, and I'll, I'll just read a couple of Richard Rohr quotes and and get your response.
0: The okay. first one,
1: the first one is from uh, Richard Rohr's book on the on on the sermon on on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount called Jesus Plan. Uh, his book is entitled Sermon on the Mount. Jesus planned for a new world, and there Richard Rohr writes this. He he writes, Jesus just assumes that things can be and will be constructed differently. Such a vision seems to be his starting point, even more than his practical goal. Jesus just assumes that things can be and will be constructed differently. Uh, One has to share the dream of God before we know how to live and where to look for the truth. When all is made new, in the original Greek phrase of the New Testament authors includes the word palingenesia, a unique word. It's rendered literally as regeneration, a new genesis, an utterly new beginning, or perhaps best, a totally new birth in a totally new world. It's the only time the word is used in the gospels. The book of Acts or the Acts of the Apostles, we use another Greek phrase, "apokatastasis," apokatastasis, translated in the Jerusalem Bible as universal restoration. In later theological language, this term was used to describe the restoration of all creation at the end, the reconciliation of all things in Christ, see Colossians 1.20. What a hopeful and positive apocalypse that would be. I personally love to believe that is the real meaning of the victory of Christ and the final resurrection. And uh, Brian, I was just wondering what thoughts uh, came to your mind as I shared those words from Richard Rohr.
2: Well, uh, R- Richard's a dear friend, and and we were closely together. And uh, I I so appreciate one of Richard's uh, really bold insights, and that is that uh, it's not that God operated in one way, and then Jesus came along and somehow convinced God to change God's plan.
1: Right, not a plan <laughs> um, A, plan B thing.
2: Exactly, uh, and, and in fact, he says this is an idea that really comes in Franciscan uh, Franciscan theology from from the very early uh, times uh, right after St. Francis, uh, that actually, no, um, Jesus is God's plan from the beginning. And that in a sense, Jesus doesn't change things, but Jesus reveals the t- truest and deepest way things are. And and in a sense then, you know, when we think of Jesus' death and resurrection, what what death, Jesus' death and resurrection is telling us that what seems like the worst thing isn't going to end as the worst thing but that god will bring good out of it in some way and and that what looks like an end actually becomes a beginning and so this understanding then doesn't let us be satisfied with disastrous endings (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. it doesn't let evil ever have the last word and that's one of the real flaws in my thinking with the traditional teaching of heaven and hell in a sense it, this is a story that is really a kind of a sad story. It's not good news because we start with everything being good. And then we end with some things being good and a whole lot of things being eternally bad. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I think what, what Richard is saying is no, that, that death becomes just a means of a new kind of restoration. So that's some idea of eternal conscious torment in hell. Just makes no sense in that world.
1: Well, one of the things that I appreciated about Richard is the way that he he drew on some of the thoughts of early church fathers. And you know, when you're in when you're in Protestantism, well, I I, I didn't really grow up in church, but I ended up in the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, which was kind of a movement that that, that they didn't look too much at early church fathers. Yeah. You know I, same it, with, same it, with me. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, But through Richard Rohr and others, I became more acquainted with some of the early church fathers, uh, such as Gregory of Nyssa, who had this idea that ultimately all would be well and that all would be uh, reconciled. And I was uh, leading a recovery group at the the church, and we were reading— it wasn't a recovery group, it was just more of a general discussion group, because we were reading uh, Richard Rohr's book, Everything Belongs— and yes. it was just about you know how do we deal with these we, we all come we all go through tragedy in life and difficult uh, and difficult things and we tend to want to push them away and name them as all bad or all evil and in that book he was saying no oh, that that everything in life um, in a sense is bearing a gift and that there is yeah. something good that's in everything and so this is a quote from um, from Richard Rohr's book Everything Belongs where he writes. There were a number of fathers in the early church, the first four centuries, who believed in apocatastasis, which means universal restoration, Acts 321. They believed that the real meaning of the resurrection of Christ was that God's love was so perfect and so victorious that, in fact, it would finally win out in every single person's life. When I read the history of the church and its dogma, I see apocatastasis was never condemned as heretical. We may believe it if we want to. We were never told we had to believe it, but neither was it condemned. We almost hold out for universal restoration, that the true meaning of the raising of Jesus is that God will turn all our human crucifixions into resurrection. Could God's love really be that great and that universal? Is life just a great school of love? I believe it is. Love is the lesson, and God's love is so great that God will finally teach it to all of us. We'll finally surrender, and God will finally win. That will be God's justice. And Brian, I was wondering what those thoughts from Richard Rohr brought to your mind.
2: Oh, what a beautiful quote. I, that was actually the first book of Richard's that I ever read. So it um, brings back good memories. Uh, you know, it, it reminds me, uh, th- this, this idea that love will win in the end, uh, this, this sort of basic argument that we're having in the Christian mm-hmm. faith which is the the argument, does does love win in the end or does retribution win in the end? And uh, I I just think any of us who are parents, you know, Jesus himself invited people to say, look at how you're a parent. How would you treat your children? Mm -hmm. You know, God's got to be at least that good to you. And I can't imagine a a parent who would be happy to punish uh, his child forever, when when a parent of that power and love would be able to win uh, his or her child over to the side of love. So
1: I, I know sometimes uh, sometimes people say, well, we, you know, um, God's ways are different than ours, you know, than our ways. And so we really can't think by analogy about yeah. who God is, and my response to that is, well, Jesus is the one who taught us to teach us by <laughs> analogy about That's who right. God is, and even named God as 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 a parent, and and and, and that invited us to say, look, even 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 bad parents know how to give good <laughs> gifts to their children, and if bad parents know how to give good gifts to their children, how much better is our perfect parent, our heavenly Father, able to know how to give good gifts?
2: Yes, that's right. That's right.
1: Well, um, let's continue uh, continue on. And, um, and now, now the podcast that I have is about the intersection between uh, Christianity and, and universal salvation. And, um, but Brian, I understand that you have some concerns that even, you know, Christian universalism could be narrow if it functions out of an old paradigm in which the only aspect of salvation that really matters is deliverance from guilt. And I understand that you have a broader perspective and a broader paradigm than that. And I think you have some important things to say about how a broader understanding of salvation connects us to the current situation of the poor and the ongoing challenge of racism and concerns uh, about the environment. And Brian, I was wondering if you, if you could say some things about that.
2: Sure. Well, uh... Maybe a way to say it is by sharing a bit of my story. You know, I I grew up in a tradition. We just revered the Bible. So I was learning. My parents would have Bible reading at dinner table every night or almost every night as I grew up. Mm -hmm. And so I learned a lot of Bible at a young age. But it was funny. I became a pastor and I was preaching from the Bible several times a week or leading Bible studies and so on. So I was in the Bible a lot. And Mm -hmm. I don't think I was, it was until my, I was in my thirties, maybe my mid or late thirties that I realized that no one in the old Testament believed in going to heaven or hell. (laughs) I, 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 you know, it's obvious once you see it, but Mm -hmm. uh, we, you know, I'd been taught that that was the rules of the game from the beginning. So I remember this sort of crisis when I realized oh, the, the King James Bible uses the word hell, but that's the word he, in Hebrew, sheol, and it just means the grave or the place of the dead. And no, no Bible translator today would, would use the word hell uh, to translate that Jewish concept. And so I, I started wondering, where did this concept come from? And, uh, and I started realizing that the Christian faith made a choice, not the entire Christian faith, but especially the Western Christian faith, what we would call Roman Catholicism. And then the Reformation of Protestantism was a movement out of Roman Catholicism. So the Western Christian faith made this turn early on in the early centuries where the entire story became a story about heaven and hell. And and that became the plot line, who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. And I started, uh, and I realized that, in that the early movement of Christian universalism was saying, if we're given that story, that there are two paths, one to heaven and one to hell. And traditional Christians are saying, you know, Catholics are saying nobody goes to heaven except good Catholics. And Lutherans are saying, nobody goes to heaven except, you know, people who believe Lutheran doctrines or whatever. Mm-hmm. The universalists come along and say, no, uh, everybody's going to heaven. And, um, and we th- we don't have to hold that over people. Well, look in that context, I think that's a better answer. I'm not criticizing Christian universalists. Um, yeah,
1: that. you know, they and they would Christian universalists would say everybody that that ultimately everybody comes through Christ. Yes. Uh, uh, so you know, which is which is a broadening you know, that that Christ uh, saves the, delivers from the sins of the whole world. But if we just think about sin as just this personal thing my own my own personal life, and we don't think about it in in terms of larger systems and context, even Christian universalism could have a very, very narrow definition of of salvation. And exactly. I think that that and I think that that really comes through in in your book. Uh, the uh, neo is concerned about yes. this in the in the last word, in the word after that. and and I yes. think you're concerned that that we broaden, that we broaden the lens when we think about uh, what what salvation
2: encompasses. Exactly right. Exactly right. And that means that we don't, we, we have the freedom to say, maybe the rules of that game aren't the right rules, or maybe the storyline that has been told to us isn't the right story. And one of the things that does is it forces us to go back and examine doctrines that we don't necessarily have to reject, but we at least ought to rethink about things like original sin and total depravity and so on. And it, it invites us to go back and look at the scriptures in a fresh way. And, and uh, when I do that, I say, listen, the word salvation gets its meaning in the book of Exodus as salvation from Egypt, salvation from slavery. I would say a really good uh, uh, paraphrase or, or uh, a synonym for salvation would be liberation to be set free from injustice and evil and oppression, and um, and so if God's desire, as Jesus said in his very first sermon, uh, when he quoted Isaiah, that God wants to liberate the captives and and uh, proclaim release for the oppressed and imprisoned, mm-hmm. uh, that that God's goal is liberation for everyone, and and of course that would mean that ultimately God would not be satisfied. Uh, with having the bulk of people end up in a place called hell. But what it means on earth is that instead of just saying, Oh, everybody's going to heaven after they die. So we don't need to worry. It would make us say, if God's desire is liberation for everyone, then we should all be joining God in seeking the liberation of everyone from oppression, poverty, sickness, uh, uh, ignorance, uh, uh, abuse, and all the rest. And, and so that would involve us uh, not in a sort of triumphalist, everything is going to be okay, but it would involve us in the struggle for compassion and justice uh, here in this world.
1: Well, I think this is a, it's an important observation. I think it is a nice segue into, the, uh, into your latest book, which is entitled uh, Faith After Doubt. And, and in this book, you describe doubt as a doorway, and then you describe four stages to which the doorway of doubt leads. From stage one simplicity, through the doorway of doubt to stage two complexity, through the doorway of doubt to stage three perplexity, through the doorway of doubt to stage four harmony. And to me, I just see this as a way of continuing to, to draw the lens back to get a bigger, more comprehensive, yes. more healthy, more cohesive of, of view of everything. And so I was wondering if you could just uh, tell us about your about your book and about you, you really you know reading through that you really look through a lot of different ideas about how faith develops and how we and mm-hmm. how faith and how doubt and faith work together. So tell us some more about this.
2: Sure. Well, first I, I've really been looking forward to this podcast with you um, because, in some ways, that the work you're involved with helping people develop a broader universal understanding of God's love, compassion, and salvation, it really matches with these four stages. Yeah, it um, does. In, sta- in stage one uh, that I call simplicity, we tend to be dualistic. It's it's how we all begin. It's, it's the most elementary way of thinking. It's what parents teach their children. This is safe. Mm-hmm. That's dangerous. These are family. These are strangers. These are friends. These are enemies. These are, this is good. This is bad. And um, uh, that dualism is deeply embedded in us as children. It's necessary for our survival. And unfortunately, a lot of religion, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, Buddhist, whatever, can be in this dualistic mindset. And it Mm -hmm. stays there forever, it never grows beyond it. And you can see how if you were in a dualistic mindset, all you wanna do is sort people into categories of good and bad and hell and heaven become a nice way to do that. So I yeah. can see. Yeah, and, and,
1: and this age that we're in right now has really doubled down on dualism. Is that demonizing the other and making yeah? It, so boy, we are we. It's like uh, I used to play that uh, Mother May I game. It's like it, you know, it's like we took yeah. the two giant steps backwards. Yes. Towards uh, towards that, <laughs> we retrenched.
2: You're so right. We see it in our politics and we see it in racism and we see it in, you know, so many things where we're just wanting to create the good guys and the bad guys, us versus the enemies and that kind of a thing. And and what happens is a lot of people stay there their whole lives. But I think life naturally brings us uh, to doubt some of that simplicity. And we move into what I call complexity. And now we realize, oh, the world isn't as simple as I thought it was when I, w- when I was a child some of the people in our group who we said were good they're not so good and some of the people in that other group who we said were bad they're not so bad life is not just black and white there are shades of gray and and we start figuring out how to navigate a world that's more complex uh, than we thought you might say and and and, and to me this is uh, there's an awful lot of christian energy in stage 2 complexity to try to maybe write fine print on the old heaven and hell contract, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. to, to make it not as bad as it looks. And, 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 uh, again, that's better than, than nothing, right. That's a step in the right right direction. Um, but I think a lot of people eventually they work very hard to try to fix the old contract, the old understanding. And eventually they just think, hold it, look at what this has done in history. This has allowed us to say, God is going to torture some people forever then maybe we can. I mean, I think, especially since the Holocaust, when literally people were put into gas chambers, six million Jews, and then people started to realize, but Christians have been saying this is God's going to do something even worse than a gas chamber. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And people started saying this whole thing just doesn't make sense. And so stage three perplexity becomes deep disillusionment and even anger with those old categories and that those old ways of thinking and many it's people kind of the dark say,
1: it's kind of the dark night of the soul you've tried you've tried as much as you can to try to save the old paradigm
2: exactly but it,
1: no matter what you do it just keeps falling apart
2: exactly that's it and and a lot of people just give up on faith altogether they they, they just say i just it's not even worth it anymore and um uh, but I think what happens to some people is they say, but I can't be satisfied with just giving up. And they say, there's got to be some bigger way of seeing this. And that's when I think they emerge into what I call stage four harmony, where they ha- develop the capacity to see the stories behind things and to take a second look at things and, and not to accept everything they were taught as children, and, but not to just throw it out either, but maybe to go back and look at it in a fresh way. And that's it. Seems to me what people like you have been doing in such beautiful work, um, in your writing and through this podcast, to help people uh, go back and see the gospel in a bigger way. It's what Richard has has been so effective at, and uh, uh, and it's the work I'm trying to contribute to as well.
1: Well, that and that and that really is is a good uh, is a good time to uh, to lead us on to uh, your new podcast that you're doing. Called learning how to see, and you're doing this with Jackie Lewis, and with uh, with Richard Rohr, and it's you know Richard is not is not uh, speaking as as much lately. He's he's uh, as he he's it seems he's moving into as I read him, he's moving into a much deeper contemplation, a, a, a stage of much deeper contemplation, and so really the but I was so pleased that that he's involved with this podcast that you guys are doing with the center for action and contemplation. And I'm, I'm pleased that it. this is a neat thing I think for you in this stage of your life to, to get connected with, with Richard yes. and what's going on there. So I'm, I'm, I'm pleased. I'm pleased for everybody with regard for this. So I've listened to a few episodes of this podcast. It's very interesting about learning how to see. And I was wondering if you just tell us, because You start out, I think you share in one of the initial episodes in the podcast, you share about your experience in Charlottesville, and that's Mm -hmm. also an experience that you write about in your latest book. I was wondering if you could just maybe share that story a little bit and about the Learning How to See podcast.
2: Sure. Well, um, yeah, that story is one I'll never forget. Um, Two young clergy, a a couple, both ministers, uh, who then were serving in, uh, in Charlottesville were friends of mine, and they sent me an email. I still remember receiving it and reading it, and they said, Brian, you may not have heard, but we've had several Ku Klux Klan rallies and other white supremacist rallies in Charlottesville. I didn't know this, but they said, there's a group of people who are planning the next civil war, and they want to establish a white nation, a white American nation, and they want the capital to be Charlottesville. And And my friends told me, um, they're planning to have a big rally here in August of uh, two thousand and seventeen. Um, and they said, um, we're we're trying to organize clergy to have a counter uh, presence there, you know, a, a presence for love and reconciliation, not hate and racism. And they said, we're having great success in getting black clergy to come, even though these are going to be well-armed white supremacists who you know, we're finding courageous black clergy who are willing to come. We're finding rabbis who are willing to come, knowing that many of these people are vicious anti-Semites. We have Muslims who are Muslim clergy who are willing to come. Um, we're really having trouble. Uh, they said we're even getting white uh, Protestant clergy who are willing to come. We're really having trouble finding white male Christian clergy who'd <laughs> be willing to come. <laughs> yeah. And because this is primarily a white male you know, uh, white supremacist event. We'd really, were are looking hard. Is there any chance you could come? And then they said, but we need to tell you it's going to be dangerous. We know there are going to be militia there, well-armed militia, and it's not going to be uh, a safe experience, but we wondered if you'd come. So I, I, I was able to come and um, had no idea what a transformative experience that would be for me. Um, because to witness that kind of hate up close, uh, yeah, it's something you don't forget. I, I just, um, we thought most of the activities of the day were over on um, that afternoon, and there was a few of us standing together um, talking, and somebody ran up to us and said, there's just been, uh, someone's just driven a car through a crowd just down the street. Could you come and help? And so we ran down. We were there before the police and the first. Responders and you were there. You're,
1: in your description of that, you say that, that you remember the sound of your, you know, your feet, the leather slapping on the ground, and you were in clerical. Uh, That's right. Garb, which is you know, because you're not you're not a big clerical garb guy. That's but, right. But you had it on that day. It's just it's just sort of the irony of that moment of you in 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 the sort of representative clerical. uh yes. Uh, clothes so that you would be known that day as a member of clergy, and then yes. running to the scene of this. So, okay, so you, you, this accident has been reported, and you're running that direction.
2: Yes, I should say the organizers wanted us to wear a clerical garb because they they wanted their t- people to see, in, in a sense, for us to be sort of visible agents right. of peace. You know. Yeah. And and um, so when we, yeah, and and I for that reason I was wearing you know black leather shiny leather shoes and not the yeah. best to run in and uh we ran down the street there's a huge crowd the car had driven through the crowd and then driven on and as you know uh, one woman Heather Hare, hair had been killed but there were several other people who were on the ground uh, i i was right near this one uh woman who i thought was dead she uh, uh and uh and her sister was hysterical, and I had my arms around her sister helping her. And and her and her sister had lost track of her son in the melee, so we had to help her find her son. And then we started helping other people who were injured. And it was just chaos. But at the same time, there was this sense, this is what, you know, this is what evil is about. And and the irony is these were a group of wonderful, courageous people who were protesting the protesters. In other words, they were protesting for racial equality and protesting for, you know, diversity. And yet somebody had come and driven through that crowd. Mm. But it, it really, one of the things that, uh, you know, that shook me every bit as much as being there that day was in the following days, I was given access that the organizers of this event communicated using, uh, uh, video game uh, uh, software, right, so they would be like they 're doing remote video games, and they had these special ways they could communicate without being monitored oh okay um, but it turns but it turns out there were informants in the group who recorded screenshots of all the communication, and I was given access and I remembered in the following days as I read it was it just made you feel dirty, but to read people today saying racist, hateful, anti-Semitic, anti-woman, uh, just hateful, hateful things. And they were so sure of themselves. And I realized that, you know, uh, that just, that very often the worst people, that people doing the worst things are absolutely convinced they're the good people. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, very, uh, a weekend that we'll never, that, that, that we'll, I'll never forget.
1: Well, so that the uh, that kind of gets into your podcast, because in your podcast, you talk about different biases yes. about that affect the way that people see the world. And so yes. these people, like you were saying, were seeing the world through several different, several different biases. And yes. I think it was really interesting in your in some of the first episodes of the podcast. You have several biases that you uh you have a good way of organizing things. It, yeah. you, you, A number of them, I think, started with the letter C. That's right. Uh, so could you share maybe some of those biases that people have, yeah, which, which then to. affects their worldview?
2: It, it does. And in fact, we could sort of, on the one hand, think about what happened at in Charlottesville, but we could also apply these biases to rethinking old ideas of heaven and hell and, and, and old ideas of, uh, you know, exclusive kind of uh, salvation versus universal. Um, one of them, the probably the most popular or most well-known and powerful is confirmation bias that our brains mm-hmm. are wired to accept ideas that reinforce what we already think, but to reject ideas that will disturb or disagree with what we already think. Right. So we, we, we have a bias toward what we already think. And, and you could see that, if you've got a group of white supremacists, they're going to, any news that comes along that reinforces their white supremacy, they'll, uh-huh. they'll latch onto it. Anything that would challenge it, they reject it. Um, and of course, the same thing happens. You grow up being taught about heaven and hell. You grow up being taught this Bible verse means this. Um, and you believe it and you accept things that reinforce it. And the first couple of times somebody comes along and says, you know, it might not be that way. You're almost mm-hmm. guaranteed to reject it. I bet you experience that all the time in your work David, yeah. as you try to help people, you're coming up against confirmation bias well um, and
1: another another thing i don't I can't remember exactly what you called it, but it was something along the lines of a simple untruth yes is much is much more powerful than a than a complex truth
2: yes. Yes. And that's, and, you know, I call that, that complexity bias. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Complexity bias. And so that when you get to heaven and hell, you know, uh, well, here's the situation. God has his heaven and God has his hell. And if you don't get right with Jesus, you're going to his hell forever. So you need Very to get simple. right with Jesus. Very yeah. simple, right? Yeah,
2: that's <laughs> right. Exactly right. And, and so complexity bias really plays a role. And, uh, so you put, uh, you put, uh, these two first biases together and it's a wonder any new idea ever gets through our filters. I'll add, uh, two more. One is uh, community bias. When you're part of a community that thinks one way that has its same simple answers and that, that, uh, you know, has its same confirmation bias at work. It is mm-hmm. very hard to accept a different idea because you're afraid that you'll be rejected by your community. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, so community bias plays a big role. And then one more is, I call it cash bias, but it's the problem of financial interest. Right. And if the pastor knows, maybe a pastor starts rethinking some of these things, just as I did. It's from mm-hmm. reading the Bible that I began to question what I'd been taught. Um, but then they realized if I were to preach this, my major donors would get mad at me and they would stop giving and that would hurt me, it would hurt the church. Uh, and And so now the role of cash and how we think uh, plays a role. So you put all of these together and you realize that it really does take the grace of God to get through our biases. And you realize why Jesus spoke in parables because parables are ways of drawing people to imagine things could be different Mm -hmm. uh, or to drawing people into see a problem with our conventional way of thinking.
1: I remember one time uh, in my process, I, I, I had, up until, you know, around 50, my way of thinking about spirituality was that God was good and that God would save everybody that was savable. But perhaps there were some people that just embraced evil to such a level that maybe, you know, that they wanted nothing more than to be away from God forever. And so maybe God finally grants them their, you know, their wish. And so I was kind of functioning at that level. And then some events happened and I started to rethink the possibility of universal reconciliation and i finally came to the conclusion through a, through a long process that that um that finally god being all in all was what made sense finally made sense out of all of creation and i remember how it affected me in my view of the world i rem- i remember thinking you know when i would see people that are my you know these really vile evil people that you would see yeah. i would say to myself that is my eternal brother and he is right now he's sick and he's, he's not functioning. He's not functioning the right way, but one day he will be, he will be delivered from that. And uh, who knows how sick I might have been had I had or shared his experience. So I need to be careful. As a matter of fact, if I had lived his life, I might have been a worse racist than he yes. is. I might have done exactly. a, I might have been more terrible yes. than he is. And so I began to look at the world and I began to say every there is nobody here who's expendable. Even the worst person you can think of is not expendable. They are my eternal brother and sister in Christ and and so I cannot hate them. I yes. I can take exception with what they're doing but I still when I when I begin to see them as a person who still who uh, this is a part of the creation gospel, too, because what the creation gospel says is that that the initial creation is good and that the goodness of God is bestowed upon us uh, and that there's. So even in that person who looks almost completely evil, yet there is still this spark. There is yes. still this goodness that God is after uh, to restore. And what's I, what's interesting is that sometimes that happens in this life and yes. that you see these people that you know a year ago were on the cutting edge of the worst stuff you can imagine and then now they're completely they're completely healed and that's cast off and they they went what happened was actually they were in perplexity when they were doing all of that yes. and then yes. something happens in the midst of all of that and it, their perplexity explodes and then they they go through the doorway of doubt into
2: yes you know, a better, a better way of seeing yeah. things my goodness, I love the way you say that, David. It reminds me of something Dr. King said. He said the only way to permanently get rid of an enemy is to help him become a friend. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, was, uh, and, I was listening
1: and, to uh, some of Dr. King's speeches. That you can for like seven or eight dollars, you can get all of his speeches. And so I was just listening through one of them, and it, it was a it was an interview, and he said that sometimes people say that uh, that I am that I'm just saying that we shouldn't do anything. And what I'm saying is that is that we should do the most powerful thing of all and that's to actually love our enemies. Yes. Because yes. everything that we're doing, all of the strategies that we are doing, if we don't do them in love, yes. they don't it's love that changes everything. And so yes. actually love I'm advocating using the strongest force that there is and that is the power of love.
2: Yes. Yes, yes, yes. And, you know, this to me is one of the terrible byproducts of the traditional doctrine of hell. It has the idea that the only way God can deal with evil is to throw it away. Um, Right.
1: And not uh, redeem.
2: And not redeem. And uh, I, I think the good news is way, way, way better than that.
1: Well, we're, we're kind of coming to the, to the end of our interview time, but I do wanted to take a, take a little bit of personal privilege and to share a couple of Brian McLaren stories. <laughs> and I guess everybody, a lot of people have Brian McLaren stories now because of all your books and your conferences and things. But So here's my first Brian McLaren story. Um, uh, years ago, uh, we were going to add live music to our contemporary worship service, but we didn't have a drummer. And so we decided to pay a drummer to sit in and, uh, until we had a volunteer who could take over. And a man in our church heard about heard about this situation and recommended that we contact a guy named uh, Roger Williams, a local drummer that he knew and had played with various churches and ministries in the area. And uh, now, no offense, but I wasn't really thrilled about this because I was concerned that, you know, what we're going to do if we got a narrow-minded evangelical fundamentalist drummer, that's not going to be a good fit for us. But I couldn't get out of at least talking to Roger. So I called him up and I invited him to come by the church We met in a room with a nice table in it. We sat across from each other with a table between us, and that was on purpose because I had a secret weapon I'd brought with me, a copy of your book, A Generous Orthodoxy. Because as we all know, Brian, you're a bit of an evangelical lightning rod. So Roger and I were visiting, and I was trying to explain how open-minded our church is, and and then I just put down on the table, I just produced on the table my copy of A Generous Orthodoxy, and I just sort of plopped that down there and just waiting to see what would happen. Well, what happened is this. He just looked at me and he and he smiled and he said something like, well, just so you know where I was coming from, even though I've been playing drums in some evangelical churches, I also brought along a book to show you. And he plopped down on the table in front of me his <laughs> copy of a generous Orthodoxy. And so I'll just say it was a moment between us and the beginning of a friendship, which lasts still today. Uh, So thank you. Thank you, Brian, for uh, writing A Generous Orthodoxy in your other books. You must have lots of stories of people who have kind of found each other through like, oh, you you like Brian McLaren? Oh, I do, too. Or...
2: (laughs) Well, and some of the opposite, too. But well, uh, but I should say that really means a lot to me. That's very, very encouraging. Uh, I I couldn't be more happy hearing that story.
1: Yeah. And that's I think that's really one of your one of your best books, because it just that idea of having a generous orthodoxy, I think uh, is something that we can all we can all use a little more of. Okay, then the one more story. And that was years ago, back in uh, 2012 and 2000, 2012 or 2013, you spoke at a gathering of the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, where you were a keynote speaker. And I went to that conference with my friend and colleague in ministry, Don Morrow, and he was really looking forward to hearing you speak. He really enjoys your work, and we were all interested and looking forward to hearing you speak. And during the conference, I tagged along behind you and I visited with you a little bit because it was at that time that I was moving to having a Christian universalism as yes. my spirituality. And you were so nice to visit with me about this. And I got some good encouragement from you. And then at the end of the conference, there was a question and answer session. And, uh, and during that question and answer session, I asked your, your response from a quote uh, to William Barclay's book, A Spiritual Autobiography. And then I shared the quote from Barclay and, and you affirmed it. And you said it was a beautiful quote. And a good way to end the conference, so I thought I would share that quote today as a way of uh, as a way of wrapping up our time together. So this is a quote from uh, William Barclay's book, um, A Spiritual Autobiography, and I include it at, at the end when I tell my story. And, and Barclay says that he thought there were four basic reasons that to for why he became a convinced Christian universalist. And the first was he thought there was more than enough evidence in the New Testament to support it. Second, he believed that the phrase eternal torment found in Matthew 25, 46 could just as easy, easily be understood in the Greek to mean remedial punishment. And then this third and fourth uh, reasons were what I shared at the conference. Uh, third, uh, well, he and he, he does, Barclay was from a different generation. He used a pretty patriarchal language here, so we'll forgive him for that.
2: Hmm.
1: But he wrote... Third, I believe that it is impossible to set limits to the grace of God. I believe that not only in this world, but in any other world, there may be the grace of God is still effective, still operative, still at work. I do not believe that the operation of the grace of God is limited to this world. I believe that the grace of God is as wide as the universe. Fourth, I believe implicitly in the ultimate and complete triumph of God, the time when all things will be subject to Him, and when God will be everything to everyone, 1 Corinthians 15, 24-28. For me, this has certain consequences. If one man remains outside the love of God at the end of time, it means that that one man has defeated the love of God, and that is impossible. Further, there is only one way in which we can think of the triumph of God. If God was no more than a king or a judge then it would be possible to speak of his triumph if his enemies were agonizing in hell or were totally and completely obliterated and wiped out. But God is not only king and judge, God is Father. He is indeed Father more than anything else. No father could be happy. While there were members of his family forever in agony, no father would count it a triumph to obliterate the disobedient members of his family. The only triumph a father can know is to have all his family back home the only victory love can enjoy is the day when its offer of love is answered by the return of love. The only possible final triumph is a universe loved by and in love with God.
2: And I remember at that
1: conference, and I was reading that to you, and it was a a pretty big gathering of people. There were four or 500 people there. And it was one of those times when you know, it was just a big moment for me. My heart was pounding so hard yes. when I was reading that quote and I was sharing it with you and I handed it and I handed that back to you. And then you said that um, you thought that was a beautiful quote and maybe a good way to, to end the conference. So I was wondering if you might, in thinking about what William Barclay said and others have said, if you might give us some good words to uh, end yes. this podcast interview.
2: yes. Oh my goodness. And just, it's just interesting. I'd forgotten that what we were saying about God being a father is exactly how Barclay uh, ends that that quote. Yes. Oh my, oh my, you know uh, all I can say is the beauty of, of taking God's grace that seriously and the beauty of knowing the uh, unending uh, power of love. I think of those words in First Corinthians thirteen: "Love never fails. Love never quits." That mm-hmm. of course, the love of God would never quit, uh, and would never stop loving someone, and that love never fails. Love will, uh, love will get through. And so, th- to imagine that the end is the final triumph of the love of God—that is a beautiful beautiful story to inhabit. So I thank you so much for, for your work and helping more people uh, enter into that story and for uh, bringing these beautiful words from William Barclay too.
1: Well, Brian, I know I speak for a lot of us who are really grateful for your journey and how vulnerable you've made yourself in, in sharing that uh, along the way. And thank you for your new book that, that has come out. And uh, I hope everybody uh, picks up a copy of your new book, Faith After Doubt, and uh, listens to your new podcast, Learning How to See. And uh, I think we're all excited to see you know, what's going to happen with your collaboration with Richard at the uh, Center for Action and, and Contemplation. So God bless you in, um, in all your continuing journeys, and uh, we we'll look forward to uh, hearing more good things from you in the future, okay?
2: Thanks, my brother. And you keep up the great work, too.
1: Okay, thanks Brian.
0: Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David, or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.